Hello, and welcome to Doc Tales, the podcast where I get to interview my dad about his lifelong adventures as a doctor in Israel and all around the world. I'm Yoni Alkin. And I'm Dr. Michael Alkin. And he's here to tell you, in his own voice, his Doc Tales. My father has always kept the secret Mossad mission to Kurdistan on the down low. I knew about it, and I've seen the black and white photos of him with a glorious mustache, but as you can hear, he has always avoided talking about it or even mentioning the mission's location. Since so many years have passed and many of the people in the story are no longer with us, we get the opportunity to hear his story and get a glimpse into the life of a secret agent in the heart of a revolution in a foreign country. So I better get out of the way and let him tell you all about it. Let's get started. Last time you shared a really neat story about um, how you got to Kurdistan. Now, I've known about your trip to Kurdistan, but I don't know anything about it. So I'm really excited for today to hear how it all happened and what did you do there and everything. So where would you like to start? So as I told you, uh, there was this funny incident where uh, the guest general was injured and I pulled the shrapnel out of his rear end and he said shukran shukran which means thank you thank you in Arabic and this made things fall into place because there were rumors and whispers among the paratroopers that uh, Israeli officers have been uh, sent to uh, aid in the revolt of the Kurds in northern Iraq and I turned to the host, the officer who brought the guest, and said, I know where he's from, I want to go there too, without mentioning anything else. And he said, uh, I'll take care of it. Now, historically, the Kurds are a minority in Iraq, a minority in Syria, a minority in Turkey. And their wish is for an independent, total, country of Kurdistan, which will never happen because all three countries regard them as a minority, as the underdog, as the troublemaker. Uh, look at what's happening these days in Turkey. Uh, look at the way that uh, Iraq has been really cut in two by the Kurdish uh, minority who is practically like an independent state within a state. Historically, uh, the Kurds have revolted many, many, many times. The first revolts were in the 1930s against the British. And then when in Yalta, the leaders of uh, the free world were carving the map of the globe according to their wishes, the Russians showed an interest in the Kurdish minority in uh, Iraq and helped to establish a Kurdish republic with its capital in Mahabad in Iran. Because Iraq, Iran, who cares? It looks like the same oil well for the British. The uh, Republic was run by uh, a Kurdish national who was an intellectual and a very special man by the name of Ghazi. And uh, his uh, 
chief of staff and military men was uh, the Mullah Mustafa al-Barazani, whom we will uh, mention over and again in our talk today. Yeah. The uh, British had enough of that, and uh, through the British, Iran crushed the uh, newly formed government, hung Ghazi on a uh, light post on one of the bridges to be seen and feared. And Mullah Mustafa Barzani took 500 warriors and started the big walk into the Soviet Union. So he went north from the Elbrus Mountains along the Caspian Sea into uh, what today is Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. where uh, he was received by the Communist Party uh, as a brother with his 500 warriors. They were given land and uh, they became farmers in Azerbaijan. They learned the Russian language. They married local women and uh, sat there for a long time until a revolution in Iraq brought a man by the name of Qasim, who was a communist, to become the president of Iraq. And in his negotiations with Stalin, the 500 and their families were returned to Iraq. The happy days of Qasim ended with a counter-revolution as a result of that, the body of the assassinated Qasim was uh, pulled behind the jeep in the streets of Baghdad mm. for people to see and fear. This started a revolt by Mullah Mustafa Barzani, uh, which actually uh, continued into the 60s. Against any government that wouldn't grant the Kurds their rights and independence. The Kurds of uh, Iraq were uh, actually divided into tribes, the two major tribes that had two different languages were the Suranis and the Bahadinis, who could be identified by the different colors and shapes of their uh, headdresses. They were dressed in traditional clothing, and the fighters of the Barazanis, most of them were Bahadinis, and they were dressed in uniforms which were actually tailored according to the traditional attire of the Kurds. So there was a light khaki material which was uh, tailored into baggy pants with a big uh, extra piece of uh, material between your legs. And uh, there was a headdress which was made of two red and white kafiyas which were tied into a like a turban around your head. There was a diagonal across your chest with uh, ammunition for your rifle. And this was, this was the way the fighters looked. Hmm. Back to uh, me as a lieutenant in a paratrooper outfit, uh, waiting uh, for a phone call, which came. And uh, the phone call said, uh, Mr. So-and-so wants to meet you. Actually, I can tell his name because uh, he has passed away a long time ago. Mr. Haven wants to talk to you, and uh, he will uh, see you uh, in his office. I said, yes, great. Uh, Where should I come? And the man said... 
come to where they uh, remove the cadavers out of Ichilov Hospital. Oh, my. Uh, that's not far. As a landmark. <laughs> <laughs> and I came there at the time specified, and there stood a, a sweaty, fat man with uh, thick glasses. He looked anything but uh, a security person or a spy or whatever. And uh, it turned out that he was the go-getter for Mr. Ha Evan, his uh, faithful assistant, who never left the office while Ha Evan was uh, doing all kinds of things. Uh, he took me into a building. I was. Uh, they took away my ID card and gave me a card which said visitor, and uh, I was asked not to go anywhere except for where this gen this fat gentleman was taking me. Hmm. Uh, we went up in the elevator, through a corridor, into a room, an office like any other office, and there sat a man again. If I were to picture an agent, a spy, a Mossad officer, it would be the opposite of uh, Aluf Harevin. Mm. Harevin was uh, genuine, uh, soft-spoken um, intellectual who uh, had this very thin smile on his face most of the time, welcoming me and uh, saying, I heard good things about you and... Uh, Here's uh, what we do in Kurdistan, and here's where you fit in. And he spoke for about half an hour. Okay. My response was, I would like two things. One is, if you have a file of all the medical correspondence and activities with Kurdistan, I would like to read the file if possible. And second... Uh, I would like to uh, take off a day or two and go to libraries of the university and look for historical material and learn about the Kurds. Arevin liked that, and he said, here's the file. He asked, of course, uh, his assistant Efraim to bring the file. And I sat for about two hours taking notes, and at the end, when I, when I returned the file, Ephraim said, you realize that these notes are staying here. And that's when I started to understand that uh, this is for real. Yeah, how secretive everything is. Right, right. And I went to the Tel Aviv University, the library of the Department of Political History, and uh, most of what I told you about Ghazi and about uh, Barazani comes from uh, my uh, interest in uh, the history of the Kurdish revolt. I looked at the geography and uh, I, was, I was about to go to a very interesting part of the world. Absolutely. And then started the briefings and uh, the teachings. I will not go into details uh, because maybe somewhere someone is uh, using the same tactics that I was taught. I became a European national of one of the European countries, I will not mention which, and uh, I, I was given a history, a family history, like the Median name of my mother and things like that. 
You were basically gi given a whole identity to, to take with you. I was given an identity. I was given an identity. I was given a name. And uh, I was asked to cut away from all my clothing the, uh, you know, like in a shirt in the back of your neck, there is a... Uh, uh, tag. A tag, thank you. A tag of how to wash the shirt or where it was made, all in Hebrew. These had to be cut out. Um, toothpaste has to be an imported brand. Uh, they really looked at details. Um, Good. And uh, there were teachings about escape routes, about all kinds of things that uh, I will really not go into. So one bright day on March of 1969, uh, I was asked to come to the military part of uh, Ben-Gurion Airport. And uh, without any uh, passport control or anything like that, we were ushered. I said we because there was a medic who went with me. I never met him before. He was a total civilian of Iraqi descent, who spoke Hebrew with an Iraqi accent. Uh, his name is Ezra, and uh, if you spell Ezra in Hebrew with the hey at the end, it is help. And I regarded him as my guide, my help, my interpreter, my everything. We were put on a cargo plane with Seats like uh, when you when we were parachuting out of the airplane. It was a military cargo plane loaded with uh, boxes and boxes. And I knew what's in the boxes because uh, they looked so familiar. This These were uh, mortar shells and uh, ammunition for machine guns and all sorts of stuff. All destined to Kurdistan. So it dawned on me that we were not just advisors or giving uh, medical aid. We were actually participating in this revolt. And one of the things I can tell you from the training was that we were told that this is the second cycle. This is defending the country so that the Iraqis have to send a brigade to fight the Kurds in order not to send the brigades to our border with Jordan as an invasion of Jordan and a threat to Israel. So there was a direct link. The flight was not very long, and we landed in Tehran airport, uh, greeted by uh, security people who uh, never stamped our passports. Uh, they just ushered us through the airport to a vehicle that waited. And there was our man in Tehran who greeted us and uh, took us to our hotel and said, tomorrow morning you come to what is actually the delegation or the embassy. There was no embassy, but there was an Israeli delegation. The relationship with Iran was very tight. And uh, these were the days of the Shah, actually the best days of the Shah. All our oil came from from uh, Iran. And it felt like coming home mm. because uh, I was there before right. on the trip, on the trip as an intern. 
and I knew Tehran, so uh, I knew where to go. I took Ezra to a, a little restaurant, and we had chilo kebab for uh, <laughs> dinner, and a very, uh, very uh, Iranian style, drinking doh abali, which is the uh, watered yogurt. It was a great evening. And the next morning, we went for a briefing in the embassy, uh, led by in parenthesis, our man in Tehran. And uh, he made it very clear that he expects Ezra and me to reopen the field hospital, which uh, was closed because of the snow and the cold, as a preparation for another offensive of the Kurds. And I was supposed to take care of all the patients, and uh, this was uh, this was a very clear briefing. The amazing thing was that when I asked if I could see friends of my parents just to say hello, he said, please tell them that you are going to Singapore to our delegation there to be the medical advisor. Hmm. And you will fly out tomorrow. So, in the afternoon, I went to see the Kotler couple, the white Russians who, Jewish white Russians who settled in Tehran. Mm -hmm. I told them the story about Singapore, and uh, they said tonight is bar mitzvah of one of the prominent uh, Jewish families of uh, Tehran. You're coming with us. Oh, interesting. I said, I don't have the attire. So Mr. Kotler gave me a jacket which was too small for him and too big for me. <laughs> and off we went. And here is this great celebration. And in the corner sits the man who briefed me the whole day. <laughs> of course, I don't even look at him. But Mrs. Kotler takes me by the arm and said, do you see this man in the corner there? He's working in the embassy. He made aspiring for Israel all over the Middle East. I thought I was going to die on the spot. Yeah. I had to hold back and not laugh loudly. So anyway, that tells you how secret secrets are. Right. Anyway, we went by convoy. Uh, we were in a Land Rover Jeep, and behind us was a convoy of th two lorries, which were packed with everything we brought on the, uh, on the airplane. And it was a two-day trip through a lot of uh, villages and towns, through an interesting desert. And we ended up, after two days, climbing up to the border with Iraq. Uh, this, the driver of the jeep was the security person from the Iranian uh, Mossad, which was called Savag, which uh, was actually built up by uh, Israeli assistants. And he saw it, saw to it that we cross the border and that everything is clear and uh, kosher. And up we went into the mountains, and ahead of us there was a snowplow. 
and the snowplow stopped. The men jumped off, ran to our jeep, hugged us and said, welcome, welcome in English, and introduced himself as George. And George was belonged to a minority of minor in a minority. He was a Christian in the Kurdish revolt, working for the Kurdish revolt. He became a friend later on. And uh, we went over the pass following the snowplow and then downhill on the other side with a uh, half-frozen river to our right in a uh, forest of uh, oak trees further down and then off the road into into the countryside where uh, the jeep stopped the two trucks went to a different location and here on a large meadow there was a fallen tree trunk on which there were there was there were teacups which were filled in our honor with sweet tea and we were introduced to the group of Kurdish people who were our bodyguards. And one of them was the administrator for the hospital to be. And the meadow was the place where the hospital will be built. Huh. There were two tents put up already for us to sleep in and a big tent for the guards who were all armed with uh, Mauser rifles, Mauser 1898. So these were very old rifles which are very accurate. In the local slang they were called Brno because uh, this is the city in the Czech Republic where the big factory of Mauser was placed making these rifles for the German army. Mm -hmm. Some of them had swastikas on their rifle butt. Oh, my. So, again, you cannot escape uh, Jewish history even if you go into the mountains of Iraq. This started a three-month period of, uh, how should I put it, of, of working very hard and being content and happy with what I do totally secure and safe, which was completely false. Ezra, who was from Iraq, couldn't sleep at night, had a revolver under his pillow, had all the escape kits next to his bed in his tent. In my tent, I had a tape recorder with music, and I had some books to read, <laughs> which I brought with me, and... Uh, it felt like another uh, outing, you know, another uh, long hike. During the first week, with the help of the guards, we built up the tents that made up the hospital. Um, a doctor's office, a pharmacy, a male tent, and a female tent. This was the hospital. In the pharmacy, I built a corner of a laboratory where I could examine urines, make blood counts. There was a microscope. And uh, I, I felt at ease professionally, but very, very, very lonely professionally. And I admit to you also personally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, these were trying days. These were days in which I had no consultant. The only bond that we had was uh, the daily 
uh, hour of uh, communication when the radio men of the Israeli Mossad delegation, which I will talk about in a moment, would communicate by cable with what we call the office, which was the high-rise building in Tel Aviv, where uh, our cables were received, deciphered, and res the response came the next day. So if I would uh, send a message saying, um, I have a patient with uh, abdominal pain and fever, and I wonder if I should uh, give him anti-malarials or anti-tuberculosis treatment, the answer would come the next day because they would consult doctors who have been here before, have been to Kurdistan before. It was not a very efficient way of consultation. On one of the occasions, a very young horse tried to jump a barbed wire fence and had a long cut along his belly, which needed uh, suturing and... Uh, I asked on the cable what the dose of uh, antibiotic would be for a young horse. And uh, the answer came another, at the next day, and I gave the horse the right dose. Uh, holding this uh, young horse while I was suturing his belly was another story. The whole outfit of my bodyguards was recruited for that. Oh, my. But the horse came from the stable of uh, Mullah Mustafa, so uh, it gave me clout to suture and cure this next generation stallion for the leader. Wow. So we were in the meadow in the hospital, and about a walk of an hour along the river downstream, you come upon a gorge in which it was a very wide gorge, in which the major camp of Mullah Mustafa was located. And it, the, this, these were mostly half, half of them, about half were tents, and the other half were mud huts. The Israeli delegation received a mud hut, uh, which was uh, paved with mattresses, because you take your shoes off and you sit on the mattress, and uh, this is the dining table and the bed to sleep on and uh, the uh, front parlor to receive guests because there were cushions and pillows and uh, it was a little bit like uh, among the Bedouin. And we used to go there in the evenings after work to be with Israelis, to uh, hear the news from Israel on a shortwave radio, to chat in Hebrew, to uh, relax. And usually one of the Barazani family would come and join us and uh, the conversation would be in Arabic. The Israeli delegate, I think I will say his name, he was called Abu Yusuf, which means the father of Joseph, but his real name is Chaim Levakov, and uh, he was born and raised in uh, Lower Galilee, in days when uh, everybody was a pioneer and uh, builder of the country, he was about 30 years older than me, and he was like a father figure on one hand, a tough commander on the other, and a fantastic storyteller mm. uh, with a sense of humor, with a warm heart. Uh, the evenings were, were just absolutely wonderful. And I realized that I have to learn Arabic very fast. 
or else I will not participate in the talks with either Mullah Mustafa himself, who came in the first evening and uh, asked uh, if I uh, speak Arabic, and I said, uh, just a little, and he said in English, I want you to examine me medically. So we sent everybody else out, and the leader of the revolt took off his uh, pistol and his uh, magazines and his shirt, in which there was a huge pocket full of papers. And uh, Chaimke used to say, this is where he carries the archives of the revolution. <laughs> and I examined this muscular elderly man who was the picture of health and said, may God give you long years and of good health uh, in Arabic. And uh, this, this was very impressive. And... Uh, he uh, he really appreciated that. Mm. And then we called Chaim and uh, the radio men back. The, the whole delegation was uh, radio operator and, and Chaim. Right. So we were four Israelis in the middle of nowhere. Chaim didn't talk to me about operations. And our men in Tehran said in very general terms that uh, an offensive is being planned and that further officers from the paratrooper units will come as military assistants and as uh, instructors for uh, courses for this kind of commander and that kind of commander among the Kurds. So we were expecting more guests. The hospital started functioning. I started seeing patients. I made up out of cardboard uh, cards which served as uh, files for the inpatients. Um, I had no x-ray and the lab was very limited so I had my brains, my eyes, my hands to trust and uh, no one to consult. It's very interesting to hear you talk about how you had very limited uh, resources and you had your brain and I say that it's interesting because I know the way that you teach your students and the way that you teach your students is to think about the meaning of what they do and what's the background of the actions that they're taught to do and understand them to the basics. And that's what enabled you to use so little resources and actually get stuff done. You're right. This was actually the first mission I ran in a developing country uh, during a civil war. Most of my patients had medical issues and not war injuries. But here and there, one of the guards would come in and show me that he had a shrapnel under his skin from a previous skirmish and asked me if I could remove it. And uh, I did. I did remove some of the shrapnel of the uh, of the guards, and uh, it was a it was an extra bond with these guards. And every evening when we didn't go over to the other two guys, the hours hike one way and the hours hike back uphill along the river in the dark. The torches that we had were very useful, and they uh, were called by the guards light. Uh, which is neither Arabic nor Kurdish, as you can understand. Yes. Anyway, the evenings 
that we didn't go were spent with the guards. And I made a point of uh, trying to learn more and more Arabic from them. Amongst themselves, they spoke Kurdish. And here and there, I caught a word in Kurdish. They appointed an interpreter for me. His name was Nuri. And Nuri was uh, not a fighter at all. He was a city boy who joined the revolution and spoke English. Not very good English, but good enough. He spoke Arabic and uh, the two Kurdish dialects, Sorani and Bahadini. And he was my interpreter, and he was my eyes and ears, and my advisor on the local culture and local habits, what to do, what not to do. So the relationship with Nuri was very important. Mm -hmm. And word of mouth goes very fast. And we are we had lines of patients every morning. The guards would disarm the soldiers among the patients before they go into our hospital. And lo and behold, the hospitalization tents were filled. And then I learned how to perform smears for tuberculosis out of the textbook that I brought with me. And I started diagnosing tuberculosis. And I started treating tuberculosis. And I asked the head of our guards to put up two tents across the stream, which we could pass on uh, rocks, to be the hospital for tuberculosis patients. So that they're isolated. Them. Yes. And uh, I'm jumping forwards. Late, Many years later, I met one of the, the Kurdish people who uh, were part of the revolution who came to Israel. He took one look at me and said, in Arabic, he said to his host, Aha, this is the doctor who is not afraid of tuberculosis. So uh, this was uh, this was already uh, something that I did, which uh, didn't happen before. Mm. Uh, we could fill uh, uh, an order for medications, and uh, the vehicle would go down to the Iranian side into town in Iran and go to the pharmacist and get medications. Uh, Heinke said, uh, beware writing anything that is disclosing that we're Israelis because the pharmacist is Jewish in, uh, in that town. So uh, life there was interesting. We had a little guy who was our cook, and he uh, saw to it that uh, we don't go hungry. Uh, he was not very good. Uh, the food was not very uh, tasty. <laughs> and every now and then I would uh, ask to be his assistant and uh, make some dishes which uh, or which uh, were to, my, to our liking, like uh, add raisins to the rice mm. to his horror <laughs> and, and some peanuts, which I would uh, cook with the rice to his horror because they only eat white rice clean as is. Right. And then there were days when uh, the guards would uh, kill a goat and uh, we would uh, eat uh, shashlik 
on this bed. So, it, and there were days when the cook would walk the hour to the major camp and bring some uh, soup or uh, dish out of the oven for uh, us to eat, uh, which was which was very kind and nice of him. One of the days, uh, two mules showed up. And the man who was leading them said, uh, these, are, uh, these are the vehicles that uh, Mullah Mustafa sent for you. Uh, you should come for a consultation. Okay. So uh, I mount one of the mules, Ezra mounts the other, and uh, we are led along the river. Uh, it went very fast. It took less than half an hour instead of an hour's walk. And here we were, ushered into the headquarters, ushered into the dwelling of Mullah Mustafa and his family. Daughter-in-law, who was from Baghdad, um, had a consultation with a British uh, doctor from Harley Street. And there was a letter in her hand that she suffers from allergies and she should be given this uh, um, these injections to desensitize her for the spring flowers that will come up uh, during the next month. And I looked at the small print and it said, Spring Flowers of South England. I thought, oh my God, this is, this is placebo. This can't work in the mountains of Asia where the vegetation is really different. Yeah. And... Uh, I decided not to say a word and to give her the injections as required and uh, give her uh, my best wishes for good health. Uh, she spoke English and communication was easy. The two sons of Mullah Mustafa, one of whom is the president of uh, the Iraqi entity in Iraq today, Masoud Barazani, uh, were uh, half kids. They were by about two. Masoud was 18 and uh, Idris was maybe 22, recently married to this woman from Baghdad. No children yet, and I asked not to be pregnant during the injections because I didn't know, I didn't want to be blamed for any miscarriage or something like that. Right. So these were the adventures. Uh, there were many, many more adventures. It is... Uh, I don't think we have the time to go into all the stories. Um, Chaim was replaced by an officer because this was going to be a military operation. Um, you see Luntz, or Luntzi as we called him, hmm. uh, was a hiker. And uh, Luntzi and I hiked to most of the peaks surrounding our area with the guards and uh, I was called Dr. Rajli, which means the doctor with the light foot, huh. because, I, because I walked a lot. Um, these were wonderful outings, uh, in, all the way up to the glacier, or all the way to the peak with the open air and the wind. Um, uh, Yusuf and I became like brothers. It was fantastic. I'm not going to go into the visits of the military and the operation that was planned, cancelled, and then planned again. It, it made life 
easier for us because there were more Hebrew-speaking people. And uh, we could celebrate Passover as a group. You had a um, Seder over there. Uh, yeah, I ran a Seder. I even cooked the chicken. Hmm. Uh, it was, uh, we didn't have pita, we didn't have matzah, but we had this dry pita bread that was uh, baked. You, you you know the style. This is very, very thin bread, which is not leavened. So uh, it was good enough like matzah. I mean, that's the and, origin of matzot, so I guess so. And when when we came, each of us brought a bottle of booze with us. And the uh, Chaim and the radio man and then the officers, they either brought brandy or whiskey and i brought a bottle of uh, cointreau which is a very sweet very tasty uh, liqueur and the the opening of uh, drinking in the evening was what will we have tonight brandy whiskey or the doctor's hair hair oil Oh, no. <laughs> they didn't appreciate French liqueur. <laughs> so uh, I had most of the gun on you myself because I don't like, uh, I don't like uh, brandy and whiskey. Yeah, you like sweeter um, things. I, I couldn't write uh, like I used to on hikes and trips. So instead of writing the whole thing, story I wrote in English short sentences for summarizing the day mm. and years later I turned this into a proper diary of what happened today and what happened yesterday and what are the plans for tomorrow and uh, describing the hikes and describing some of the patients and some of the wonderful relationships with the guards the Pastime for the guards was playing chess, uh, which to me was amazing because um, among the paratroopers, uh, the the simple soldiers play backgammon and the sergeants play checkers, and the officers play chess. And here everybody played chess and played well. One of the officers who came was Aaron Davidi, who is not alive anymore. And uh, he, he was a full colonel, and uh, he was a professional chess player. So he used to play simultaneously against all the guards in their tent and beat all of them. Wow. And it, it, they, they couldn't believe their eyes <laughs> because they were good players. Yeah. But he was better. Um, one of the things that we could do was the monthly visit of our man from Tehran. Um, we could send letters with him. And uh, I think it was after two months that I wrote a long letter to Yardena asking her to marry me. Yes. And uh, I told Chaim about this letter. 
and he said, is her name Yavdena? She must be from Galilee. <laughs> I said, look, she is a daughter of Yekes from Nahariya. And he said, Nahariya is Galilee. <laughs> Which is not far, but not exactly. No, it's, it's okay. It's western. It's, it's the shores of western Galilee. Right. Uh, okay. And uh, when finally uh, Yordana and I, after we were married, went to visit Chaim, uh, he uh, he regarded her as one of them, you know, one of them Galilee people, and it was uh, it was love of, love at of first sight. They 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 got along very very well. Yeah. So uh, on one hand, it was very lonely. On the other hand. There was so much activity and so much doing and so much learning. I went back home really with a feeling of omnipotence. Mm. Of I can do. And after another uh, almost a year of service, uh, I was asked to go again. And I went for another round of duty, during which I ran a course for Kurdish medics, teaching in a language that I didn't master, mm. writing it, not writing, but dictating a text in Arabic to be used as their textbook, because there was none. And it was printed in the uh, printing house of the revolution from uh, stencil sheets that were kind of, uh, oh, I don't know how to call this in, in English. It was the old style printing which where you wrote on a typewriter without ink and etched into a special page, which then became the page from which everything was printed. Um, it was very primitive, um, and with a st st stilet, with a point, I could make illustrations. I still have one of the copies of that book. I still can't read it, because it's in Arabic. But the illustrations are so naive and so simple. Um, the course was was a big success, and when finally the big operation took place, these medics uh, really saved lives. And uh, this was the major thing I did in the second round, second time I was there. Right. And imagine coming back from being Alpha and Omega in the hospital, which I built, I ran, and I directed, and I was the medical officer, the one and only to becoming a first-year resident in Hadassah, the bottom of the totem pole, it was a real shock. It was yeah. very difficult. And I was away from mainstream medicine for three years mm. when I started my residency. So my knowledge in Arabic and then in Kurdish language didn't come in handy at first. I had to study medicine. I had to go back to the textbook. And you were away because of uh, your military service as well, not just exactly. those excursions. Exactly. Right. 
No, it was it, military service in the Sinai or in the Gaza Strip. You, you, you're away from uh, medical literature, medical progress. Yes, uh, later on when I was uh, in the Sinai in 1975, I organized seminars for all the doctors of the armored division once a week on their way home. They stopped at the airport for an hour to have a lecture on what's new in medicine. And I flew down professors from Tel Aviv to give the lectures until uh, they complained and they said that I'm cutting their weekend off short. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the Kurdish revolt uh, was so formative in whatever I did later on. Uh, was leaning on this fantastic adventure. One of the things that I found difficult was to go back from cloak and dagger to stethoscope and reflex hammer. Um, and uh, actually, as a resident in Hadassah, because I spoke English, I was asked to run and uh, spoke Arabic. I was asked to run an outpatient clinic for patients who spoke only Arabic. And uh, this was uh, one of the benefits of my trip to Kurdistan. And they, they used to say, oh, you are an Iraqi Jew, you speak Iraqi Arabic. And I so would say, yes, you're right. It was amazing that you could hear this from my Arabic. Yes, yes. Right. Why should I, why should I say anything else? Yeah. Especially since it was secret at the time even more. Yes, there was one exception, and that was an old, old Kurdish man from one of the villages in the area of Jerusalem who was brought in by the family. He spoke only Kurdish. He was dying of cancer. And I took care of him, and I closed the door and said in my best Bahadini Kurdish that I wish him well and that I hope that he's not in pain. And he kissed my hand and was so happy to hear someone who speaks at least a little bit of his language. Yeah. Again, fast, fast, fast forward. Uh, during a mission to uh, Macedonia where we worked in a camp of... Uh, uh, refugees from Iraq during the uh, civil war in Iraq recently. Uh, there were the Yazidis who spoke only Kurdish language. And the fact that I could greet them and say a few worded words in their language really made a difference. Yeah. And this is 50 years after I was in Kurdistan that these words and greetings and blessings in Kurdish language came back to me when I really needed them uh, to take care of the Yazidis. Absolutely. Yeah. What happened to the Kurdish revolt itself? You said how formative it was for you, but what was the, end, the outcome of the revolt? The uh, military operation that was planned was so successful that it uh, had its echo in the relationship between Iraq and Iran. And uh, the echo was very grim because the Iranians 
said, we are vulnerable to any attack from Iraq on our oil fields, and we can't have that. And we can't support any attack on Iraqi soil because they will retaliate in our oil fields. So they decided to put an end to the Kurdish revolt and assist the Iraqis in invading Kurdistan. Um, Mullah Mustafa was ushered by the Israelis through Iran to Washington, D.C. with uh, cancer and uh, grim future. Uh, his sons were in exile, first in Iran, then in Baghdad. Uh, and I wonder what happened to the eight young Kurds who were my bodyguards, who were such dear friends of mine. And I wondered what happened to my medics, the ones that I schooled and then later worked with me in the hospital. Yeah. And I never found out. Um, the next phase of the Kurdish revolt was uh, the fall of Iraq with the uh, invasion of uh, President Bush and his gang. Not understanding at all what Iraq was about, not understanding the difference between Shia and Sunni, not understanding the difference between Kurds and uh, Yazidis and uh, Christians and God knows what else. Right. And uh, the end was a success of uh, Masoud Barzani and his people in establishing a quasi-republic uh, in the north of Iraq, which uh, I tried to uh, form any kind of relationship with. And uh, when I contacted the retired people from Mossad who still remembered me, I, they hit a wall. It was uh, was not acceptable that uh, I should return there and uh, renew my contacts. They uh, they sent young people who uh, didn't have a history with Iran and with Iraq. Yeah. And all I could say is so be it. Thank you so much for joining us on this adventure. This show was recorded and edited by me, Yoni Alkin, and it would not be made possible without the wonderful help of my brother, Shai Alkin. The music you're hearing right now and in the beginning is by the awesome Jefferson Berge, and you can find more about us at docktales.org. I hope you join us again here at Docktales, and in the meanwhile, take care of yourself and take care of somebody else. Mm-hmm.